0: faces a number of immediate as well as longer term structural impediments to growth. Some of these challenges are reflected in persistent high income and wealth inequality. Others are reflected in service delivery protests and demands for free tertiary education or the steady rise in the number of social grant recipients which is now rapidly approaching 18 million people. There is an urgent need for South Africa to find a way to lift the level of economic growth meaningfully. We're currently hovering at levels of 1% and have been there for, for quite some time but in a manner that leads us to sustained job creation. Without widespread sustained job creation, the authorities will find it increasingly difficult to address frustrations of the population, thereby raising the risk of increased social and political protests that would further undermine consumer and business confidence. At the same time, developed markets are being negatively impacted by an aging population, which is undermining the rate of growth, while many emerging economies, including South Africa, are struggling to unlock their demographics dividend. What does this all suggest about South Africa's future economic prospects? Here to give us the answers is Kevin Lings, uh, Chief Economist of Stanlib. Since 2001, Kevin has been employed as the Chief Economist at Stanlib in Johannesburg. Over the past 10 years, the scope of his economic research has broadened to include the G3 economies, as well as members of the BRICS. His research is largely used to inform Stanlib's asset management investment process, and he embraces the philosophy that everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. This is a philosophy that I must say resonates with me personally. Whilst at StanLib, Kevin has managed an asset allocation unit trust fund for five years, winning the MicroPulse Best In Sector Award. Before joining StanLib, Kevin was employed as an economist with J.P. Morgan Chase and also worked as an economist within the network group for 10 years. He has also worked as a part-time lecturer at the Vits Business School for more than 10 years, lecturing on a range of academic and executive programs, including the MBA, the PDM, as well as the MAP. The Missing Piece is Kevin's first book on the South African economy. He has also published a number of journal articles, both domestically as well as internationally. Kevin contributes to the financial press in South Africa regularly, including television, radio, and print media. He also presents at a range of industry-related conferences as well as policy forums. Besides a passion for economics, Kevin is a keen photographer, obtaining a licentiership from the Royal Photographic Society a few years ago. He's also an avid horologist, and launched his own watch brand in 2012. Kevin lives in Johannesburg with his wife, Kim. I know we've been trying to get Kevin to come and speak to us for some time now, and it's a real privilege to have him speak to us today. Thank you, Kevin.
1: All right, morning everyone. There's obviously something wrong with the front row, hey? Oh. Oof, too close to what is it, a one day? I wonder why psychologically we just don't sit in the front row. Okay, so there's a lot going on in South Africa, a lot going on in the world. We're going to try and make some sense of all of that, uh, try to give you uh, some ideas of what we focus on. Obviously, I'm from the asset management industry, so uh, please, uh, my, my views are from that perspective. You know, in other words, we worry about managing money and where to get the best return. So, uh, just remind yourself of that as we go through the discussion, um, yeah, especially on some of the negative stuff on South Africa. Hmm. If you want a copy of the presentation, please, we can make it available hey? uh, so we don't print it. We just uh, email it. Uh, anybody want a copy? Uh, I can send it to you uh, i 'm not sure if there'll be time for questions, but uh, I will be around if anybody wants to ask anything. All righty, so South Africa has um, has a number of challenges, and I think that the way we're dealing with these challenges is kind of in two buckets, from what I can assess. And that's a bit unfortunate, Uh, but in terms of the immediate focus, there seems to be attention on these five challenges, and I would say that's what Cyril's up to, to some extent. Besides playing politics, uh, he's worrying about some of these issues. And I guess uh, that is important. All of these five issues are important in terms of trying to get the economy going. So you can think of South Africa's economy as having stalled, having stagnated. The growth in the last uh, decade has been 2% or less. In recent years, it's been uh, below 2%. At times, it's been below 1%. Uh, this year, probably closer to 1% than the initial expectations of 2%. And I must say that at this stage, there's risk to the downside in terms of the growth rate. We've just not seen the numbers improve. And remember that we're in the third quarter. I'm still not seeing the data get much better. So I guess the immediate challenges are fairly obvious to everybody. Uh, A lot related to confidence. I'm going to talk about the importance of confidence as we go along. It's critical. I've never seen a country be successful without people being confident. Uh, That just doesn't happen. You never see confidence indices kind of tracking near low levels and the economy is prosperous. They always link. Uh, And in my mind, confidence leads everything. Obviously, it becomes self-reinforcing at some point. But you need to get confidence in the system before the system uh, gets going. And that's the difficult thing. That's really the catalyst that South Africa's after. SOEs are obviously an ongoing problem. I think they made some progress, right? Uh, we've dealt with some of the issues in terms of the management. But if you just look at the results from ESCOM, you'll realize that there's a huge road ahead. And in all probability, ESCOM is going to have to face some financial uh, reengineering on a grand scale, I guess, Uh, Transformation, we don't know what the policies are. They're playing a huge role in stifling confidence. If you delve into the mining charter, if you delve into the land issue, uh, the national health insurance, the competition uh, issues, I think they all just hurt us. They just hold back this country. That together with tons of regulation uh, is really limiting ultimately our prosperity. Uh, And then we just got to stop being corrupt. Hmm. That would be quite useful. Uh, we only, I think we rank 72nd at the moment. Um, if you go back a decade, we used to rank in the 40s. So we've deteriorated quite a bit. A lot of people ask me why the deterioration is not more severe. Uh, we only rank 70, in other words 70, I think 72nd. 72nd or 71st. So there's around 70 countries in the world that are less corrupt than South Africa and some people think uh, that ranking is quite good for us. I think what we're not realizing is it's very competitive out there. Uh, There are many countries who are trying to be corrupt. Uh, Some do it very well. Um, We're there or thereabouts, so mustn't be too harsh on ourselves. We're quite good at it, but we get caught. So I think there's a bit we've got to learn. All right, so those, I would say, are kind of the immediate challenges. The thing that worries, and I think those we can deal with, hey? I think those are possible on a kind of two, three year uh, time horizon. I think it's possible to turn those things around and I think they will see increasingly effort. What I'm more worried about is this stuff, the two key challenges, and the professor mentioned some stuff around that because these are structural. These aren't going away anytime soon and they ultimately is what holds back the economy. Essentially a poor education outcome and a lack of employment. And in my mind, I would have one, one policy goal, one economic goal that supersedes all other goals in a country. So if I was running the country, hmm, I would have one goal, and that is reduce unemployment. That's it. What is your policy plan? What is your policy goal? Reduce unemployment. If any policy comes around that does not address that goal, I would get rid of it. And the reason is that there's no other aspect of an economy that has so many benefits. If you you increase the number of people employed in a country, you address so many things simultaneously. So you name any economic problem in this country, wealth inequality, retirement problems, uh, poor healthcare, you name the problem. Every single problem gets less of a factor once you create jobs. So in my mind, that has to become the key. And South Africa has to create 600,000 jobs a year, more or less, in order to stand still. In other words, to stop the unemployment rate getting worse, 600,000 jobs. Obviously, we come nowhere near that. And so ultimately, that represents South Africa's most important challenge, but also, I guess, South Africa's most important uh, opportunity. So when it comes to education, there are two problems in my mind, two fundamental problems. The one is that not enough people finish school. The dropout rate is way too high. It's pointless focusing on the pass rate at matric, or uh, and even to some extent on the quality of the education, although that's obviously a major problem. But if 1.2 million children start school every year in this country, and just over 600,000 write matric every year, where the hell are the children going? So there's a huge dropout from grade 10, and more or less half the class leaves after grade 10. Now, it's it's near impossible to become economically successful if that is the situation. Go look at the unemployment rate around the world in any country. Pick a country that you like and look at the unemployment rate for people who've not finished school. And in every country, you'll find that is significantly higher than the average. And in South Africa, obviously, it's alarming. So people have to finish school. Obviously you hope they get an education along the way, but if people are dropping out at grade 10, that is incredibly damaging to the fabric of society. And I would say that that's something we have to urgently address. Find a way that everybody ultimately writes matric at a decent level. The second problem I think is is relevant is that everybody wants to go to university. We're not offering people an alternative between school and university. it's very clear in my mind that people are pitching up at university with no idea of what they want to study. I remember watching at uh, an SABC, and was it SABC, I don't know, some TV program a couple of years ago where they were filming people standing outside Johannesburg University waiting to enroll, and they were going through the crowd asking people their experience, etc. and they got to a person, they said to the person in the queue, what are you here to enroll for, what degree? And the person said, I don't know, I'll see where there's a vacancy. And that suggested to me that maybe the person wasn't going according to uh, what they really wanted to do, or maybe they had no idea what they wanted to do. But the result is probably going to be a poor education outcome. And if we look at the, num- the, the pass rate at universities, obviously we, we focus at the pass rate for school, Right? But we don't ask ourselves what the pass rate is at university, and it turns out it's 17%. So 17% of all children or all students that enroll in university end up with their degree. Now that has to be shocking. That's telling you that there's a huge number of people that are pitching up at university that shouldn't be there they either got no aptitude or no interest in it, and therefore are wasting a huge amount of resources. If you think about how much time, effort, uh, bursary, all kinds of other things going on there, you're not ending up with the right outcome. Obviously, the number is quite bad when you look at UNISA, right? So if anybody here went to UNISA and got a degree, congratulations, Uh, that is incredibly rare in terms of the percentages, but you understand it relative to what's required. So that distance learning is a difficult thing to get through. There are some universities that seem to do better. Rhodes, uh, almost 25%, but I mean, really, is Rhodes a university? So you, you have to um, put it in context. <laughs> 17% is not good enough. So if you look at the education outcome, it's very difficult to think of South Africa as being prosperous when you've got that as a backdrop. The second problem is obviously the unemployment. So unemployment keeps going up 27%, uh, and it will keep going up every year unless we add 600,000 jobs a year. I haven't seen us add 600,000 jobs a year for more than a decade. There was a couple of years, uh, around about 2004, 2005, where we were able to achieve that. And we, at the time, interestingly enough, were growing this economy at about 5%. So in my mind, 5% GDP growth equates to roughly 600,000 jobs. So if we could sustain 5% GDP, we'd probably keep the unemployment rate where it is or maybe even slightly reduce it. But it means we've got to grow a hell of a lot faster than 1%. Out of interest, if you grow at 2%, our data suggests you create 100,000 jobs a year. So it's not as if you create no jobs, but 2% growth is not are going to give you the jobs that deals with the number of people entering the labor market. Of course, what this number doesn't tell you is the number of discouraged workers, people who've simply stopped looking for work. And once you stop looking for work, you're no longer unemployed in terms of the definition. And that number is at an all-time record high and seems to be accelerating. So more and more people have simply stopped looking for work, which then makes this number look better, believe it or not. And to me, if you drill down into the data, the the crux of the unemployment problem is this, and that is the youth unemployment. And every country in the world which has a high youth unemployment have other social consequences that follow. And in South Africa, the official youth unemployment rate is 53%, which would be considered kind of high. But if you add back the discouraged workers, that number jumps to 67%. And if you do some maths, within a year that number is going to be at 70%. So think about that. 70% of the youth, that excludes people who are at university or any other college. 70% of the youth are unemployed in this country. Under those circumstances, you can understand why the EFF is quite popular and why it represents a risk to society. You can understand why this is the potential feeding ground for a lot of populist policies and potential social unrest. So to me, that's the crux of what you're trying to solve. You can deal with ESKIM's balance sheet and all the other issues, but fundamentally you're trying to change those two things. You're trying to give people an education and you're trying to give people a job. And if you do those two things, most of the other problems will take care of themselves. Now, how the hell do you create jobs? And what I'm amazed at is we fill up our newspapers with all kinds of things that discuss this country, most of it politics. So in my mind the business day should be called the political day, it's hardly a business newspaper. And most of the discussion is political in nature and then we throw a bit of race in uh, and some other related topics and then we've got South Africa. But the key topic that we're not discussing in this country is how the hell do we create jobs? When was the last time you wrote or read an opinion piece that answered that question? Because once you create jobs, everything else starts to change. So how the hell do you create jobs? And in this country, I think what we tend to do is once we see that problem, we think government is the answer. And many people in this country think government is the answer to many things. Hmm. And I think government thinks it's the answer. The problem with that idea is that in order for government to be the answer, they need money. And it's very difficult to get your government to deliver a good outcome if they've run out of money. So, the government has run out of money in South Africa. I'm not sure they're aware of it. In parts, they may be cottoning onto it. But in general, I don't think they're entirely aware. And have a look at how much government has been borrowing each year in the domestic bond market. And what you'll notice in earlier years can you see how little money was being borrowed? So government at that point would be borrowing typically 10 billion rand a year, 20 billion rand. There were years when that number was negative, which means in total government is borrowing no money. They are net repaying debt. That is phenomenal by global standards. And during most of those early years, Trevor Manuel was the Minister of Finance and therefore applauded internationally for fiscal discipline. And then something changed. If you look at that chart, can you kind of see there's a step change? Hmm. And that change occurred in two thousand and nine and we decided to borrow a bit more, around one hundred and thirty billion. At the time, the government told us that they were going to borrow more money and spend that money on infrastructure. That is what they told us. I believed them. Hmm and they came up with a plan a 3 year plan where they said government would spend 826 billion on over 3 years on infrastructure and that sounded like the exact plan south africa needed because we could see we were running out of infrastructure 826 in the end, government borrowed that money and then a little bit more, but they didn't spend the money on infrastructure. In the end, they spent the money mostly on salaries. And over a five-year period, the salary bill in this country, the salary cost to government doubled. To double something in five years, it's got to grow at 15% a year. And government's salary cost doubled because they gave way above, wage, uh, inf- way above inflation wage increases, and they also employed more and more people. And so the salary component just consumed a lot of government's budget. You throw in some social grants, a bit of corruption, and it means you've got to keep borrowing at an alarming pace. And over eight years, government has borrowed a trillion rand and spent most of that money on consumption. Now, something must have changed, right? In 2009, there's a step change. I'm still trying to work out what changed. If anybody's got an idea, let me know. It could be to do with, I'm just guessing, yeah, leadership uh, within the government might have changed. Um, somebody could have come to power who decided to spend a bit more money. Hmm. But it means that government has to now keep borrowing at that pace, not to do infrastructure. Hey? It has to keep borrowing at that pace in order to pay for this consumption system they've created. In fact, every year government reduces its infrastructure budget and last year it reduced the infrastructure budget by 80 billion in order to provide higher education at no cost for a selection of students. So government is not focusing this increased borrowing on infrastructure, it's focused on consumption. Now, here's the scary bit. That increase in government debt excludes the money borrowed by government to deal with Transnet, Eskom, South African Airways, I think quite soon SABC, and a whole range of other state-owned enterprises. That debt is not included in that number. So if you put all that debt together, then South Africa's uh, government debt goes to 70% of GDP, having been at 35% of GDP less than 10 years ago. Now that is an alarming increase. And when you you increase government debt at that pace, the rating agencies don't like it. And so they systematically downgrade you to the point where you're pretty much junk status. What you can see in the purple bars is government's own forecast as to what that debt is likely to do. And what they have to now do is keep that debt where it is. That means from here on they've got to try and be disciplined. That means that government cannot be the engine of growth for this country in terms of their own spending. Not in terms of policy, they can make a big difference. But in terms of government intervening in this country to grow the economy by spending money, that's not possible unless we are willing to borrow a huge amount more and therefore go fully into junk and cause all kinds of other problems. That tells me that government cannot be the engine of growth to lift this growth rate up to the 5%. There has to be another alternative focus. Fortunately, there is a solution. It would be terrible if I was standing here telling you there's no solution. Hmm. But right now, there is an option. Government's just not aware of the option. We hope they become aware of it. But there is one remaining option available for government. And that is we've got to deal with the very thing that has caused the damage in this country. Not the person, the very thing aspect. And this is what's caused the damage. In order for a country to be prosperous, it has to invest in itself. In order for you to be prosperous, you have to invest in yourself. You tend to call that education. But in order for an institution or for a country, it's got to constantly be investing, renewing, expanding. And in South Africa, the private sector of this country has not done that for a number of years and is effectively in a investment recession. Now, if you go back to any of the programs that were set up, the National Development Program, or if you go back to the GEAR document in 1996, what government set as a target back then is that this number should be ideally 20% of GDP. Private sector should invest to the equivalent of 20% of GDP. The reason we set 20% is that we worked out how much investment was required in order to lift the growth rate to 5% and therefore create the jobs. If you look at the level of investment undertaken by the private sector, it was obviously sitting at 14% or thereabouts a few years ago, but since then it has dwindled, and right now it is stagnating. And without private sector investment, it is impossible to create jobs. A guy called John Maynard Keynes wrote about it in 1936. And he said in his book, which uh, is kind of called The General Theory, is the level of employment is determined by the level of investment. And if you simply look at your economic framework from that perspective, and you constantly remind yourself the level of employment is determined by the level of investment. Then the focus has to be improving that number. If you improve the level of investment, then naturally the level of employment will go up. Now the key aspects of this economy we've neglected, right? So if you go and listen to Rob Davies, the Minister of Trade and Industry, talk about uh, industry, he will put manufacturing at the core of that discussion. And he'll constantly say that we have to lift the manufacturing capacity of this country, and he'll turn to a lot of programs that we've got in place, measures, incentives, ideas, to lift manufacturing. Those ideas are devoid of the reality. In other words, they don't match up with what we experience in manufacturing. Manufacturing investment has declined by 33% in the last 8, 9, 10 years. That is a phenomenal pullback. That is such a decline that the capital stock in manufacturing is falling. In other words, our manufacturing sector is getting smaller and smaller. Yet at the heart of it, we're saying that we've got a manufacturing growth initiative underway. We've been saying that for the last 20 years, obviously, but we've been emphasizing it in recent years. So look at South Africa's manufacturing performance relative to emerging markets. The bottom line is South Africa's manufacturing output in volume terms. Now look at the top line, which is is emerging market manufacturing production. Yes, that includes China, but it also includes Eastern Europe, which is doing a phenomenal job in manufacturing, includes part of South America, all the emerging markets put together. And look at South Africa's manufacturing in comparison, which is essentially stagnation over 15 years. And it's impossible for the manufacturing sector to be vibrant if manufacturing investment is declining. And it has very important implications for this economy. And it's all very well saying, yes, we've moved to become a service economy. But is the the economic structure we've got in place going to yield 600,000 jobs a year? So what does South Africa do predominantly? What is our economy made up of? Two things, essentially. We do them all the time and then we repeat. The one is banking and the other is shopping. And we're very good at both of them. I'm not ignoring the broader aspects of finance, but we're very good at finance and we're very good at shopping. And if we continue to shop and finance and then shop and finance, will that create 600,000 jobs a year? And here's the problem with the model we've got. The top number is shopping. We're very good at shopping. There's very little the rest of the world can teach us about shopping. We've got great shopping centers and we know how to shop. The problem is the bottom line in comparison, which is manufacturing. And that gap tells us that when we go shopping, what are we buying? Predominantly... Imported goods. So as we boost shopping, as we give people more salaries, as government pays more social grants, employs more people, we get more bonuses, what do we do with that money? We're not keen on saving it. South Africa, for the last few decades, hasn't been keen on savings. Which means any income we receive, we put into the top line, and the shopping centers love us. But how do we fulfill that shopping in terms of goods? Where do we get that stuff from? We don't make it ourselves, so we import it. So in effect, China loves us. China loves us because all of this income that we generate through salaries, we're simply transferring that into China. The net result is this economy shops like crazy but ultimately stagnates because we're not making the stuff that we buy. So the model, the structure of this economy, it's very difficult to envisage it creating 600,000 jobs a year. Hmm. Now, could the corporate sector expand? And the answer unequivocally is yes. Is the corporate sector in South Africa in good shape? It turns out yes. And this is a unique feature for this country We know that government is not in good shape. They've got tons of debt. We also know that the consumer is not in especially great shape. They don't have lots of savings. But the area of this country that is in good shape is the corporate sector. And the reason is is that we manage our corporate sector very conservatively. I guess mostly because CAs run corporates. There's a big downfall from doing that, but one of the benefits is that you end up with lots of cash. And you can see, as as that cash level goes up, you can imagine the chartered accountant going home in the evening and saying to his wife, Oh, I'm thrilled. Why? Because I've got more cash in the bank. What are you doing with the cash? No, nothing. I've just got more cash in the bank. So as an institution, we're very conservative. And look at that chart during the financial crisis. Look at what happened to corporate cash. While other countries were finding themselves facing corporate failures, look at our cash level. At the time of the worst financial crisis in 100 years, our cash went sideways. That must have been traumatic for the chartered accountant because what the hell's going on? I'm not building up my cash anymore. So South African companies sit on $700 a record high. I'm not sure it tells us anything. It's kind of interesting to look at, but it doesn't tell us anything because each company operates their cash level differently. But what does tell us something is how indebted are South African corporates relative to other corporates around the world. And it turns out, not so much debt. South African corporates relative to the emerging market base is one of the least indebted corporates in the world. So the question is, can corporates expand? Could they invest? Do they have the financial capacity? Yes. Do they have the skill to invest and expand? Yes. So why do corporates not do this? Why does fixed investment stagnate and as a consequence employment? And the answer is undoubtedly because corporates are not happy. If you improve confidence, fixed investment rises. If you keep confidence depressed and it's been depressed for eight years in this country, then you don't get investment. And that is a global story. It's not an essay story. So the answer is very simple. Make corporates happy. So why doesn't Cyril do that? Why doesn't he just make corporates happy? Partly because he wants to win the election next year. Hmm. In other words, his policy mix can't just talk to corporates. Imagine if his policy mix just focused on making these guys happy. What's Kasato gonna say? What What are the other trade unions gonna say? What's the EFF gonna say? What's the Youth League gonna say? What's the South African Communist Party gonna say? Oh, I'm so pleased you made the corporates happy. So he wants to win the election next year. In order to win the election next year, he has to make a specific consti- component of this election or the electorate happy. And that is not the corporates. In fact, if he made the corporates happy, they probably wouldn't vote for him. He needs to make the people happy that will vote for him. Therefore, policy can't just address this problem if he wants to win the election. Which means that policy has to remain purposely fairly obscure, fairly populist in nature so that he wins the election. What we are hoping for is that after having won the election he realizes, gee I better grow this economy otherwise I don't have a tax base and therefore I can't do anything. So at some point it's got to come firmly into focus. But in the short term I suspect We're not going to see a resolution to a lot of the policies as we try and get past next year's election. Now, I just want to give you a perspective that I encounter every day, and that is put South Africa in context. So if you look at all of that data that we've seen, you'd be saying from your investment perspective, oh my goodness, that doesn't sound good. I'm kind of treading water waiting for these things to be addressed so that we can grow this economy at 5%. And I'm optimistic on a three to five year basis that many of these things will be looked at. I do think that Cyril's the right guy. I do think that there are big initiatives to lift this country and I do think they will yield a better result than we see now. But from a business perspective, from an investment perspective, what do you do in the meantime? And what happens if that optimism is false? What happens if it doesn't materialize? So it turns out that South Africa is 0.4% of the world. I am, of course, rounding that up. Hey? <laughs> so you can't just concentrate. Think about, think about this from a global perspective. Does it make sense to concentrate all your efforts, whatever those efforts are investments, business, education, everything, all of that effort? into 0.4% of the world. Which means that you are purposely then neglecting the other 99-point-odd percent of the world. That's a huge portion of the world you're not engaging with. The biggest portion is obviously the U.S., 25% of the world. So let me just show you that if you then go to the U.S., how are they doing? Just they're doing well. They're doing exceptionally well. And it turns out they're quite like Trump. Meryl Streep doesn't like Trump, but the U.S. quite likes Trump. So let me just quickly show you the U.S., just a snapshot. And I'm picking on the U.S. because they're the biggest economy in the world for no other reason. They matter. Hmm. So what's their confidence look like? Ours is depressed. These guys are thrilled. This is not the highest they've ever been, but it's damn close. And there's no doubt that if people are confident, they engage with the economy. And the single biggest reason why um, confidence is at this level, or these elevated levels, is the election of Trump. Oh, my goodness. So it's illustrated by this, business confidence. Look at business confidence and find the, 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 the month when Trump was elected, end of 2016. So go to the end of 2016, where was confidence in Obama? Business confidence in Obama. It was below the the, the reddish line. The reddish line is the long-term average, which means that under Obama, business was not especially happy. And then something happens, Trump gets elected. And in one month, that business confidence rises the most in any month ever recorded. And when you delve into the data, what was the reason for the jump in the confidence? The election of Trump. And what the hell does business like from Trump? They like three things. They like the fact that he's cutting taxes and did cut taxes. They like the fact that he's deregulating, in other words, less rules. And he like, they like the fact that he's protecting their industry. And you put that together and it turns out business is thrilled. And business confidence has gone to a record high. That latest number if you try and kind of work on an average, that is the highest level of confidence ever recorded in the United States, and this data goes back 46 years. And as a consequence, business is thriving. Now, it's not just that confidence is high, it's also that employment is high. The U.S. employs the most number of people ever, and since the recession ended, they've created 18 million jobs. The average is 200,000 jobs a month. Not every month. If you saw on Friday, 157,000 jobs. Ooh, disappointing. 157,000, but the average is 200,000. Because there's months when it's over 200,000. That's 18 million jobs. And look at the path of that job gain. It seems fairly consistent. And if you add 200,000 jobs every month, what's gonna happen to your economy? That's 200,000 people employed salaries, shopping, economic activity. That's not a bad outcome. And it seems like it's likely to be sustained. Why? Because look at the number of job openings. What is job openings? It means job advertisements. So how many jobs are on offer in the United States? Around about 6.8 million. That is an all-time record high. That is the number of jobs being currently advertised. Companies want to employ 6.8 million more people in every single industry. When you look at the breakdown, every industry they're looking for jobs. The industry that has got the most job openings out of interest is healthcare, 1.1 million jobs on offer currently in healthcare. So the U.S. has added jobs at a phenomenal pace, but what they're saying is we want to employ another 6.8 million. And the 6.8 million exceeds the number of people unemployed. Of course, you can't match the two. It would be fun to try, but you don't have a skills and and a location match. But it tells you how tight the labor market is. And if you've got a degree in the United States, I was looking at the data on Friday, if you have got a degree of any nature in the United States, the unemployment rate for people with degrees is 2%. That is beyond full employment. That's an impressive outcome, right? And you have to acknowledge that part of that has come about since Trump was elected. Economic growth has accelerated since Trump was elected. Employment has accelerated, confidence has accelerated, and most importantly, investment, fixed investment has accelerated. That doesn't mean that Trump's not an idiot. I mean, obviously he's an idiot. He looks like an idiot. He talks like an idiot. He tweets like an idiot. He must be an idiot. But he at least understands that in order for a country to be prosperous, the business sector has to be confident that's the crux. It's not about who the president is. It's not about how much of an idiot the president is. It's about whether or not your private business, your economic system is confident. And obviously the two are kind of related, right? But if your business is confident and investing, your economy becomes prosperous. Now, That sounds like a great thing. Let's move all our money from the 0.4% into the 25% because they seem to be growing. And while we're at it, there are lots of jobs on offer, so let's make in a bid there to move. Here's the problem, and that the system is changing. And I'm not sure that we're aware of the changes. We're aware of some of them, and we mostly are aware of the technology changes, right? And the technology changes, I haven't made up my mind. Some of them are quite profound. Others, I don't think, are that significant. Um, But it's clearly our technology changes disrupting industry and business and all of those things. I don't want to focus on that. What I want to focus on is some of the demographic changes, just to be aware of it and how we try to factor that in. So the first thing to be aware of is who the hell got the 18 million jobs. So since the recession ended in the United States, it has employed 18 million people from 2010, 18 million. In what age group? So look at the fastest, fastest growing age group is 55 and older. Look at the age group 35 to 49, you would assume living in South Africa that that would be your strongest growing age group because most of you are 35 to 49. And that's where we tend to employ most of our people. You know enough not to make mistakes and you're young enough to still be interested. So that's a useful age group. Out of interest, where's the young age group? I haven't put the young age group on that chart. Where's the young people? Uh, they don't want to work. So that's a whole different chart, hey? um, Those guys are called millennials, it's a whole thing. It's a whole different thing. It's quite nice to pick on millennials. Mm-hmm. So think about what this is saying, that age group 35 to 49, there are less people employed in that age group today than there was in 2010, immediately after the financial crisis. The U.S. economy has created 18 million jobs and is looking to employ 6.8 million more. Now, if you take that age group 55 and older, which is the fastest growing age group within that age group? Turns out you want to be 70 years and older. That's the single fastest growing age group. Not the biggest age group, obviously. But in terms of the rate of increase, it's the fastest. And look more recently what's happening. It's accelerating. When was the last time you employed somebody 70 years and older? When was the last time you worked with somebody 70 years and older? We don't do that in this country. But in the United States, That is where the jobs are happening. And there are many, many examples where people reach the age of 55 and they change careers. They leave this career, they effectively retire from that, and they start a whole new career. So why are these people working at the age of 70? Are they that excited about their profession? Hmm. They're working at the age of 70, it turns out, mostly because they have to. The reason they have to is they were baby boomers, they shopped like crazy, they took on debt, and they don't have enough retirement money. So they keep working with the, when they get to 70. The other component of this is that the children haven't left home. So if you look at the number of young people still living with mommy and daddy in the US is the highest ever. Not the highest by a little bit, it's the highest by far, particularly males over the age of 30. There's something going on there. Hmm. Males over the age of 30 still living with mommy and daddy, the highest ever. People are getting married later than ever. People are starting jobs later than ever. People are studying more than ever. Why does the company employ the 70-year-old? The company has a choice, right? You don't have to employ the 70-year-old. Why do companies do that? Why employ an older person like that? Please don't tell me experience. If you're 50, then you say experience. Experience. Turns out that you cheap, 70-year-old people to employ are cheap, cheaper than 35s. 35s, when they get a job, what do they want? Turns out they want a sign-on bonus, they want share options, they want guaranteed increases. The 70-year-old just says, I want to supplement my pension. Plus, you don't have to talk to him about, so where do you see yourself in five years? (laughs) Hmm? Guy could be dead next week. (laughs) So it's changing. It's changing a lot. The other thing that has changed, for the first time ever in the data, older people are more confident than younger people. That has never happened in the history of U.S. confidence data until last month. If you survey South African data, young people will always be more confident than older people. There's a whole lot of reasons for that, partly just ignorance is bliss. But in the U.S., it has switched around. And it's a massive switch. Older people are more confident. Why? Turns out they're more confident because they have more job prospects. Younger people have lost confidence. Why? Because they're finding that they've got a huge amount of student debt. They're still living at home. Houses have become unaffordable. It's not that exciting a world for a young person. Older people much more interested in the world. That has changed, and it's changing how people consume things. Can you think about when you you got your car license, how old were you when you got your car license? How excited were you to get your car license? Turns out in the US, people couldn't be bothered. What percentage of young people, you can get your car license at 16, what percentage of young people 16 to 24 get their car license? Increasingly less and less percentage, why? Because you don't find the need for, for cars. Please don't tell me Uber got nothing to do with that when you look at the data it's got to do with the fact that young people don't go out they socialize different how do they socialize they stay in their bedroom they online doing chats and I don't know what or else conference calls I don't know and they are socializing online with their friends and that is them going out they don't actually physically go out that has all changed Employment dynamics have changed. Employment in manufacturing continues to decline. Employment in healthcare continues to rise. So there's a huge amount that's changing about society, especially in the developed world. Now, are these changes good or bad? Are they good for the economy or bad for the economy? It turns out they're bad. They're great if you're 70. But if you're worrying about the performance of your country these changes are bad and the reason they're bad is that your growth rate is not what it used to be nowadays if the US grows at over two percent they're excited Trump talks big numbers but the reality is that the US doesn't achieve that it used to achieve four percent yes but those days have gone and if you think these numbers on the US are quite obscure have a look at the numbers in Europe they're worse and Europe struggles to grow at 2%. Relative to history, that's way below its long-term average. And it becomes even more extreme when you look at Japan. It used to grow at times, over four or five, in fact, at times higher. Today, if it grows, it's exciting. So why has this come about? The reason, I'm not, there's a whole lot of factors, but I just want to distill the main reason. When you employ a 70-year-old... They do not shop the way a 35-year-old shops. When a 35-year-old gets a job, new job, new shiny job, what happens? 35, you get a new shiny job. What happens? New car, new house, new wife. So as you, as you engage with society, you are becoming an aggressive consumer, right? You're taking on credit. You're upgrading. New washing machine. New all kinds of appliances, furniture you are in an upgrade process. When you're 70 year old and you get a job, what happens? You're worried about the cost of parking at the shopping center. You're too late for the new wife. Hmm. You're not gonna buy another house, you're not gonna buy another car, you've got all the appliances. Can you see the problem? So as you employ older and older people, your effect on the economy is to slow down consumption and therefore effectively slow down growth. And that's happening in the developed world. So the problem is this. Have a look at the size of the population in the United States relative to the size of their economy. And it turns out the U.S. has less than 5% of the world's people producing 25% of the world's output. And ask yourself this question. How much can 4% of the world's population produce? How much more can 4% produce? They are already producing a quarter of the world's output. That's kind of efficient. And it turns out they can't produce much more. They've maxed out. The unemployment rate for people with a higher degree is 2%. They can't produce a lot more. The same applies for um, Japan, right? So if you go to Japan, they produce 6% of the world's output with less than 2% of the world's people. So it changes the growth prospect. So yes, these are the developed, this is the developed world, the world you focus on, but it's not going to be the growth of the world economy. And you can see that in my mind most starkly in this number. And this number is what set off this thought in my mind in the first place. And look at the number of people aged 15 to 24 in Japan. Just the absolute number of people. And in, and in pretty much 10 years, 15 years, that has gone from 16 million to less than 12 million. It is declining year on year. How do you grow your economy when your youth is declining? Difficult to immigrate to Japan. As a result, what's gonna happen to Japan longer term? They'll just continue to stagnate and eventually they'll be a minor part of this world. So where does the real opportunity lie for the world? The real opportunity has to lie in those countries that have not unlocked their demographic dividend. And which parts of the world stand out? Which parts of the world jump at you when you do that? Two parts. India, they've got 17% of the world's people. They only produce 3% of the world's output. If those guys got going, wow. Imagine that India produced at the same pace as the United States. It would dwarf the United States. The other area is sub-Saharan Africa. And that's always been the focus about sub-Saharan Africa, is this demographic dividend. And if you take a microcosm of that, South Africa represents it. Having a lot of young people represents a potential opportunity. So do it this way, last chart, look at it this way. Look at the number of young people, 15 to 24, in the top line and in the bottom line. What do you think is the top line? Number of young people. That represents Africa and India together. And the bottom line, who do you think's on that bottom line? That's all of the developed markets together, the developed world. The young people in the developed world are stagnating. So if you were saying, if you were betting, and you're gonna make a 30-year bet, who do you think is gonna be the most prosperous, the top line or the bottom line? And it's the country that unlocks the demographic dividend, young people, that is going to be the most prosperous. In other words, South Africa is sitting on a major advantage relative to what's actually happening in the world, but that only becomes an advantage when you unlock it, which means what? Employment, which means what? Education. That's the focus. And if South Africa can start to get that right, can start to get people employed, can start to get confidence right. South Africa then starts to stand out in a world economy that I think is increasingly going to be searching for growth. Growth is now at a premium. The world's biggest economy is gonna struggle to grow much more than two, two and a half percent longer term. If if a country can offer you four, five percent growth, it's a standout investment destination. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. Hold on. I hope that makes some sense. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you,
0: thank you Kevin. Unfortunately, we don't have time for questions, but um, I'd like to, on behalf of the Retirement Matters Committee of the Actuarial Society, thank Kevin for his very passionate and very informed opinion and view. Um, it was an excellent delivery, and I'm sure all of us here uh, found a lot of value from it. Thank you very much, Kevin.